Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care and Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. Today's Monday, February 19th, 2007. This podcast is being recorded during the Society of Critical Care Medicine's 36th Critical Care Congress here in Orlando, Florida. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Today we have an exciting opportunity to speak with Dr. Stefan Mayer, MD, FCCM, regarding cooling the neurologic patient, and uh, he will help me get this right. But uh, in terms of his current status, he's director of the Neurologic Intensive Care Unit at Columbia University Medical Center, and he is an associate professor of neurology and neurosurgery at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. And he gave a session, I believe today, on four advances in intracerebral hemorrhage, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to learn some exciting Uh, teaching points for the average intensivist about cooling the patient with uh, neurologic injury. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Richard. Well, I I thought, you know, uh, you and I spoke a little bit before the interview about some of the structured approach to this. And and as you were saying to me, there really are sort of two broad categories. One is the issue after cardiopulmonary arrest. And the second is the neurologic patient or the patient that has sustained some sort of neurologic injury. And maybe if you could help provide a little bit of structure to that, that would be great. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, I think of it in terms of human beings with brain injuries. And there's a broad variety of these patients. And we all are beginning to understand uh, the, the science uh, supports very overwhelmingly the concept that heat and fever is bad and cooler is good. What we're doing now at this point in time is taking what we know from the lab, this is pure translation, and putting it into our ICUs. And for the intensivist, there's really two applications for what I call therapeutic temperature modulation. One is fever control, treat, taking temperature elevations and making patients normothermic or maybe slightly hypothermic to about 36. Uh, that is broadly the much more common application in my unit. The, the second main application is induced hypothermia taking somebody with a normal temperature and lowering them down to the level of 33 degrees centigrade, which we call mild to moderate hypothermia. And uh, this is also being explored. It's a dynamic area. Uh, We've got some hits. We've got some misses. The jury's out in some other areas. And so just to take a step back, because that's really helpful, these two areas are related, somewhat different, but the concept in both is that, as you were saying, um, f- uh, 
fever or elevated temperature is injurious to the injured brain, and along those lines, inducing uh, controlled hypothermia may be neuroprotective in the setting of a cardiac arrest. Is that a reasonable way of saying that? Yeah, well, the way I think of it is all your brain-injured patients tend to have uh, a lot of physiologic changes, and one of these is a tendency to develop neurogenic fever or central fever. When you go into the neuro ICU or a unit like mine, where pretty much everyone's got a primary neurologic diagnosis, everyone's 102 degrees Fahrenheit, and the cultures are negative 60% of the time. Uh, and so it doesn't really matter if your uh, main cause of brain injury is an ischemic stroke, intracerebral or subarachnoid hemorrhage, traumatic brain injury, cardiac arrest, or encephalitis, or what have you. There's fundamentally the same kinds of mechanisms of, of injury to cells, swelling of the brain, intracranial pressure problems. And I think that for all these types of patients, uh, fever should be aggressively controlled. Where we're lacking is the final step of a large randomized controlled trial proving that the fever control improves the outcome. But every step along the way, up to the point of all the guidelines, all the guidelines for stroke and trauma say control fever. What's challenging to intensivists is that for the first time in, in, in history, we actually have things that work. We never did before. Those standard cooling blankets that are plastic that you lay on top of the patient aren't really effective. Now we have these much more effective surface cooling systems and these endovascular heat exchange catheters. You dial in the temperature you want the patient to be. So if you go for normothermia, when they come out of the operating room for their aneurysm clipping, you put a Foley thermistor in, you're measuring it online, you say this patient's gonna be 37, and it locks them in there. So you can think of it as a temperature clamp. Let me, uh, let me just, uh, again, take a step back because you've raised a couple important points. So, uh, again, as from discussing with you before, you wanted to spend a little bit more time talking about the neuroprotective effects of induced controlled hypothermia after cardiac arrest. And, and later on in the podcast, I really would like to talk to you a little bit more about fever control. But if you'd like to talk a little bit about the, uh, the background and some of the recent uh, national recommendations for induced hypothermia after cardiac arrest, and then perhaps your recommendations on how to do that, that would be great. Yeah. Um, well, basically, hypothermia, induced hypothermia has been looked at for cardiac arrest, traumatic brain injury, and just a little bit in terms of feasibility for ischemic stroke. That's where we are. Cardiac arrest is our big hit. Huge. In 2002, as many of, of the listeners know, there were two randomized controlled trials in the New England Journal showing that you can take that patient's chances of making a good recovery, increase the, that chance by 40% a number needed to treat of six patients to avoid one outcome of death or severe disability. And I'm personally, Richard, kind of on the rampage because it has been so difficult in the United States to get 
doctors and hospitals, institutions to use this treatment. It's very prevalent in Europe, and that's where the studies were done. And, and I think it really just speaks to a lot of the practical considerations, the difficulty of treating a disease that we've always thought was hopeless. Two, cooling patients requires people to work together between disciplines, emergency medicine, cardiology, intensive care, difficult. Three, the institution has to make investment, right, difficult. Yet the fact of the matter is, if you took, you can ask a lot of doctors in their surveys, only about 15% of intensivists or emergency medicine docs are cooling their cardiac arrest patients. But if it was them, and they had a cardiac arrest, and they're able to look at the literature, and you ask them, would you want to be cooled? Because it's really your only chance. You know they'd all say yes. Right. There was a group from Chicago that published that data about uh, trying to show the compliance and, and by, by specialty and, and some of the reasons behind yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, as you said, because it isn't just getting pharmacy to get a new drug on formulary, and uh, the, it's, a new, it's a new paradigm of therapy. It's, it's even more, I think, even more complicated than an expensive drug like activated protein C, where at least that's a drug, right? This right. is a complex, uh, you know, your critical care committee has to discuss it. It, nurses has to do it. And again, not unlike implementation of something like the, the sepsis bundles, you may not necessarily see for the particular patient that you're working with that what you're doing is helping. It's, it's well, based you know, on evidence. It's evidence-based approach. I actually disagree. I have to share with you my experiences. It was hell. <laughs> Getting, getting everybody on board. We had a protocol, and we decided we were going to cool them in a CCU because that's where they usually go. And it just, there was no wind in the sails. And, and you know, I love the cardiologists I work with, but they're so well, this oriented. Is, and there's also at a major university teaching hospital right. where you're having this trouble, which is, yeah. to me, actually a little surprising. It, it, but they, you know, they're focused on the heart. And what we've done now is we've made the neuro ICU, this is where we admit the cardiac arrest, because it's the world's worst form of an ischemic brain injury. So we're now, um, we have a cool pager, eight cool. The neurocritical care team goes down and evaluates in parallel with cardiology. The, the big things are, you know, the inclusion exclusion. You want younger than 75, VFib, VTAC. Generally, you're only going to get good results with an ROSC, return of spontaneous circulation, um, of about 20, 25 minutes. Over 20 minutes, it's usually they're too far in the metabolic phase of their arrest. Um, you got to pick your battles. Another important thing that I learned is when you start, you want to really zero in and be very selective to the people that have a good chance for recovering because that builds enthusiasm. If you, if you do like a 40-minute PEA arrest, you know, and, and you get the bad outcomes, the team gets discouraged. But, but I want to tell you about what you said. Um, when you do it, the last guy that I called was a, a fellow who was extensor posturing. It's an amazing story. He came to me because his niece is a neurocritical care fellow in San Francisco. She got called. She knew me. She called me. I called that ER. They had no intention. They were going to admit him to their MICU. We took him. He's extensor posturing, and he went home from the hospital. Now, I've been doing this a while, and I have never seen people who extend go home. You get those, and you know the effect on the nursing staff and everyone. They become total believers. 
let's take that and segue actually into some nuts and bolts if we can. Um, I, I know you've done um, significant research in this area, but it, let's say it was a, a hospital that wanted to start doing this. How would you help them or what guidance would you give them in terms of which particular tools for trying to cool the patient? I know this is a complicated question, but just I would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, it's a competitive marketplace. There are a lot of players there. Um, to be honest... I think that one would have to give very strong consideration to a surface system that works very well. And the reason why is it's a nursing intervention, and you can get it on people faster and get things going. You know, in in neuro, in stroke, it's all time equals brain. And the times and delays that it takes just to get somebody qualified to place the line uh, sometimes, you know, you'd, you'd like something uh, going a little faster. So there's, uh, there's no uh, technical obstacles to getting the surface thing on the patient right away, no, as opposed to taking place in the femoral catheter. Right? Yeah, I mean, it's, you, know, you know what it's like. Sometimes at night, you know, you don't have your fellows and attendings in-house, and, and that's an issue. So now if you've got really great intensivist staffing and people that are qualified to pop the line in, fine, go endovascular, that's fine. But that's the first consideration is, uh, you know, can you get that intervention placed? Do you have the people and the resources, you know, to do the intravascular uh, procedure? The next thing, though, after, so you need your device, and, you know, I can't emphasize enough, these new devices are extremely effective. Um, it, It makes all the difference. But the next thing is, once you've got something that works, your staff is going to see something that they've never seen before, which is shivering. Right. I was going to ask you about that next in terms of muscle relaxants or paralysis, and, and yeah. what is your uh, protocol? Well, we our protocol differs based on whether it's the fever control paradigm or the um, induced hypothermia. But one thing's for sure is you got to have a plan. You need a protocol because uh, a patient with unchecked shivering is, is an incredible metabolic stress to them, a cerebral metabolic stress. And it, you've got to teach your staff that they simply cannot allow patients to shiver. You've got to escalate, and you can always get the job at the end of the day. So quickly, for our fever control paradigm, we, this is what we do. And we're working on testing and validating this. Uh, we put people with fever on standing acetaminophen, Q4. We put them on 20 to 30 milligrams of buspirone, Q8, standing. When the nurse sees shivering at the level of the pecs or delts, we then do skin counterwarming, and we put a bear hugger on them. And about half the time, when you just warm the skin, even though that's not influencing the core temperature, which you're pulling down from hot to normal, it tricks the brain into thinking the body is warmer than it really is, and you'll see the shivering stop. Right. I think I heard you lecture on this before. You're saying you're stimulating local receptors that's allowing Well, yeah, the, hypo, the majority of, of temperature input into the hypothalamus comes from skin thermal, dermal thermoreceptors. So it's a way, it's a trick. The other thing that you can do is warm the hands and feet with socks and things, uh, it helped me understand when it was really cold in Manhattan, where we both live, uh, recently I realized gloves make your whole body feel warmer. It's not just the, the hands. It's, yeah, it's really interesting. Anyway, um, 
we have a presentation, Neeraj Bajati, my colleague, has a, a presentation validating, showing that the application of the bear hugger um, leads to dramatic reductions in um, oxygen consumption and, and metabolic rate using um, um, IDC, indirect calorimetry. Uh, it's controversial, but you'll see it work. Magnesium infusion is being looked at, and the reason we, we like that is it's non-sedating. And in a neuro unit, you want right. the mental status. But if you're going to continue to cool and those measures don't work and they're shivering, you got two choices left. Turn the machine off and let them be hot or you go pharmacotherapy. Meperidine, fentanyl, dexmedetomidine, and propofol all work great. And they, they can all get the job done. Um, um but the role of muscle relaxants rarely has to come up. I remember that was discussed in my yeah. fellowship in terms yeah. of that. I, well, I, the only time I use them, I really have a bias against them, to be honest. Um, but I don't treat a lot of status asthmaticus, and, and we don't see as much ARDS as a medically-oriented unit. Uh, but I use it if we're taking someone on the way down. And I would give them one mg per kilogram of vecuronium. And that's that's just to help them slide down. But the thing to remember that's interesting is you're uncoupling at the, at the neuromuscular junction, but the brain is still hypermetabolic when it's shivering. So I really prefer to cut the shivering by sedating the brain. It's something to get you through a rough part to help you induce the hypothermia. So, so it is, it's we by never no means that you need drips. to be continuous infusions. No, of I started doing that. That's what we started to do. But I realized it wasn't necessary. And, you know, the, I think it's a great way to cause critical illness myopathy. Right. So, and again, as, as you pointed out, you may be masking the uh, central side effects of the shivering that you're trying to prevent and that yeah. you're trying to treat in the first place. Exactly. Wow. So that's really, really important. Um, we, um, we're sort of heading towards the, the end here. And I, the, one of the questions I had for you, again, is that do, do you think that there's going to be studies looking at uh, hypothermia then, perhaps in some of the other neurologically injured patients like subarachnoid and hemorrhage? And, and you must have an opinion about that. Yeah. Um, well, you know, trauma is being funded by NIH, Guy Clifton. We're all going to wait and see. And they're randomizing the subset of patients that came in colder. Because that's actually, what, do you want to explain that a little bit? I'm, I'm not sure. Well, I'm not sure you know, in, the, in their their initial study, they basically cooled severe TBI, GCS of eight or less, to normothermia, hypothermia. They found no difference. I see. Bottom line is, people that they reported tremendous um, variability between centers in terms of complication rates. So the other, and that's another important message is when you're going to do the hypothermia thing. Uh, you got to be ready and prepared for all the kinds of metabolic complications that you see. Uh, they get it does immunosuppress them. It's well documented. You're going to have more um, nosocomial infections, and you got to but re really be on top of them. But you can do it with meticulous critical care, which is what we're all about. Anyway, there that's now in studies, and they're doing the subset of patients that come in a little colder. Um, ischemic stroke, we're a long way away. Because it's just logistically very challenging. But you think it's going to be important to study that, right? I mean, that's yeah, I think so. I think uh, in the long term, there are, there are new technologies coming a mile a minute. There are now these um, nasal, <coughs> excuse me, nasal chillers 
And the idea is get moving to pre-hospital cooling for cardiac arrest. And I think we're going to, uh, you can, you know, the EMTs will be intubating and they're going to be putting these, uh, these plastic soft things in the nose that cool the venous plexus, that cools the cavernous sinus and the carotid, internal carotid artery move, passes through the cavernous sinus. So you're kind of doing a counter-cooling thing there. Um, One of the other points I wanted to ask you about, again, just to emphasize for the listeners, is that when you do the induced hypothermia, the recommendations are that's for 24 hours. But when you have, or or sort of once you started doing for 24 hours, but the fever control for these patients that are in your unit, that that can go on for days, right? While this fever, and do you want to talk about that? Yes, absolutely. The main, what I found, the, we've done a little work in this, and the main stimulus of neurogenic fever is blood and intraventricular blood. So the patients that will go on for 10 days with extremely high temperatures, 39 degrees centigrade, are the poor-grade subarachnoid hemorrhages and the people that are hit with really vicious intracerebral hemorrhages with intraventricular extension. And these are salvageable human beings. Um, and, you know, fever control for us now is um, a real uh, important part of our strategy. Another thing, just to give people ideas, um, we're testing a new approach to malignant MCA infarction, where in addition to um, intensive insulin therapy, hypertonic saline 3%, we're running people at 35.5. So I call it minus 1.5. And I think 33 is so cold that you can't do it for long periods of time. It gets too dangerous day after day. Um, but running people at 35.5, we're finding that we think that um, it's, we can do it safely for prolonged periods. And essentially, we're trying to develop a critical care strategy to put the neurosurgeons out of business. And what we want to do is test the hypothesis that a critical care based strategy can eliminate the need for hemicraniectomies. I wanted to conclude with one last uh, area that's important to me, and then I'll let you go. I know you're, I know you're busy. But one of the issues that you talked about is fever in the neurosurgical patient. I know you have to deal with this in terms of subarachnoid hemorrhages, subdural hematomas to some degree. But the workup can often be complex because they're often at risk for you know a patient presenting with syncope and aspiration, coming in with a pneumonia, patient ven- developing a ventricular inf- uh, infection of the ventriculostomy. Mm-hmm. Um, right? I'm, you're you're looking at somebody who who knows the problems also. Oh right? yeah. And so the question. I do you ever run into the issue of making the patient normothermic masking an infection? I understand, you know, the patient will be cultured appropriately, but but that question must come up to you. Well, right? yeah, great question, and I bet you know the answer. What you do is you track the temperature of the water in the system. That becomes your fever curve. So if if you go and the water temperature is 25 degrees centigrade, you touch the pads, or you can touch the catheter, the part you know that's leading into the femoral site, and it doesn't feel cold, it feels warm. That's ambient temperature. When the temperature suddenly plummets down to five to 10 degrees centigrade, right? The patient's body temperature doesn't change, but they're generating a febrile response. And so you use that to trigger your fever workup and based on how they look, maybe empirically cover with antibiotics. So it's, it's, it's fun. It, it, 
you know, literally it's turning everything upside down. The ID consultants love it. They sit there and want to talk to you for an hour about this, scratching their head. Your nurses want to figure out wh- what do you do when you have a bear hugger on somebody that you're cooling. It, 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 makes, it makes the practice of uh, ICU medicine really fun. And so the, 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 just to summarize again, the answer is that shouldn't be an excuse to not cool these, to not make these patients normothermic because of concerns that that's going to block my ability to, to find their fever or something No, like I that. don't think so at all. Right. You can tell when they're generating heat, and it's simple to do. That's how you do it, and you just uh, manage them the same way you would anyone else. Great. We've had an exciting opportunity today to speak with Dr. Stefan Mayer, MD, FCCM from Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, talking about temperature issues and temperature regulation in patients at risk for um, neurologic injury. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us today. Richard, thanks so much. It was great talking to you. This concludes our podcast for Monday, February 19th, 2007. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for future podcasts, please call the Society of Critical Care of Medicine's audio feedback line at 1-847-493-6498 to share your thoughts. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Gain a multi-professional practice-enhancing perspective on cornerstone interventions and current controversies in treating anemia in the critically ill and injured patient during the second installment of SCCM's Clinical Focus Series, Anemia in the Critically Ill and Injured Patient, to be held April 12th through the 13th, 2007, in San Antonio, Texas, USA. Expert intensive care providers from multiple disciplines and specialties will stimulate thought-provoking discussions through compelling examinations of anemia and transfusion practice, red blood cell transfusion indications and associated risks, and transfusion reduction and alternatives. Register today by visiting www.sccm.org or calling 1-847-827-6888.